This is the good, the Baz, and the ugly. I'm the Baz. Well, that no, I'm Baz. That sounds weird if I go around calling myself the Baz. Anyway, uh, look, this podcast is filled with uncensored interviews with experts in particular fields or real-life stories from people who have inspiring personal tales to tell. It covers various topics and life stories that I've really dug, you know what I mean? And I think you'll dig them too. Just so you know, this podcast is for grown-ups. It may contain adult themes, sexual references, and strong language. Fuck yeah! No, I just wanted to. Sheet! Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. Hold it now, wait, hold it. I know you're gonna dig this. I think the best thing for me to do is to introduce him. What the... What's his name? Baz Ashwami. It's not Baz Ashwami. It's Baz Ashmawi. Back once again for the Renegade Master. D4 damage and ill behavior. Season three! I never thought we I never thought we'd make it this far. I'm really I can't believe it. I'm so excited. I'm I'm very pumped. I'm very loud. I'm sorry about that. Welcome to season three. Episode Guess what? Do we go backwards? Does it go like one now? No, I think we're we want a big number. Oh, so fuck we'll go on. Seventeen. Seventeen, is this seventeen? Yes, baby. Oh go. 17. Well done, John John. Well done, John John. Uh, uh, I missed you. John John is still on Zoom. Oh yeah, not for not for much longer though. Hopefully not. I think I think another couple You're of episodes. Quite disconnected. Yeah, another co- couple of episodes. And we'll, um, Mahi used a verb I'd never heard before she, she, uh, earlier on. She, she was complaining about your mic. What did you say with his mic? It's muffling. Mu- no, muffled. Muffled. It makes muffled. No, you said your mic is muffled. Muffled. Is that not a word? Muffled. Muffled. I don't know. I never. Jonathan, you understood it's... what I said when you when I said the mic. It's mic kind of like it's kind of like onomatopoeia. Yeah, it's, it's kind of on. it's it's like onomatopoeia. It sounds the way it is, like pow or pop, pop. pop. It's not a verb though. Muffled. Muffled wouldn't be a verb. It's a noun. Is it using as a noun? Jesus. A noun. Wow. Noun. Welcome to our most boring episode ever, okay, where we we <laughs> debate the word muffle. No, you didn't say it as muffled. You said well, your anyway, mic is he was your mic is muffled. Muffles. Before you turned on the mic. Your mic is muffles. Is what you were saying? No, I said your mic is muffled. You speak it in English? Yeah, exactly. I'm not sorry. I know English is my second language, but I didn't speak English well. well and that's why you muffled. impersonated an Indian person. Uh, that's whoa, whoa. this. This is layers to yeah, it. Whoa, whoa. D- d- you even did the. Uh, whoa, you did. What? I'm just saying. Like it's just you've. You you're just using that. race cards all this. over the spot I'm now. The editor, and I'm gonna take okay. This out. Okay. Well, listen. Uh, Mine's supposed to be the woke one. As well. Yeah, you are supposed to be the woke one. Really. Um, I've missed you guys, John. John, how you've been? I'm grand, yeah, but I'm looking forward to being back in the room. Yeah, we get. I, I get this Zoom fatigue that now the people talk about. I know. It's so just done man i'm really done with it and then mahi you sold out did you miss me for mickey oh yeah baby mahi's been working for disney That's it. you're not allowed to talk about it are you <laughs> you're very quiet i am i'm very what do you I, I, i'll say something and you yes or you, no <laughs> you're working with amy adams yes <laughs> i love amy adams did you tell her i said hello i said hello yes. and you're working with dr mcdreamy Patrick Devsey, <laughs> are you? Yeah. What's he like? He's very nice. 
you can't say anything oh listeners i'm sorry she's she's not giving away anything um look in, in case you've just dropped into this podcast for some unknown reason uh this podcast uh is kind of well we did this podcast because we wanted to get to the core of wellness in some way not saying you have to like light incense and start doing advanced yoga or something like have you seen the crow pose have you seen that one that's amazing that they can do that there's a one-handed crow where they just kind of line their one arm anyway it's not that stuff but it's just being emotionally open to open your mind to people and their thoughts or their general life ethoses and we do that being by being open-minded and chatting to interesting people and experts and listening to what kind of they have to say there's obviously there's another two series there you can go back and you can you can have a listen to as well it's a great series it is a great series so open your mind peeps and with that frame of mind i read a brilliant article it was in the examiner uh by Oh, what's her name? Helen O'Callaghan, I think it was. And it was on microdosing. Um, for those of you who don't know, microdosing is taking tiny amounts of kind of, uh, what would you say, mood-altering LSD or magic mushrooms, um, which, of course, is is illegal in, in Ireland, obviously. Um, but uh, you take it, uh, I don't know, for uh, for emotional and medical benefits. And, and globally, it seems to be on the increase. So uh, straight away, I was like, John, John. Uh, like, what the hell? Like, hooked me up. And what did John John say? Paul Austin. He's Paul, your man. Paul Austin is the man. Paul, for those of you that don't know, is a pioneer in the 21st century. He is responsible for the use of psychedelics for healing, uh, leadership, and personal transformation. He's been featured in uh, the BBC, uh, Forbes, and Rolling Stones for his accomplishments in entrepreneurship regarding social awareness towards the benefits of microdosing psychedelics. Paul is also the author of the book um, Microdosing Psychedelics, a practical guide to upgrade your life, and the founder of two companies in the emerging psychedelic space, Third Wave and Synthesis. I chatted to Paul. We had... I always say this, but it was the most amazing chat. It was just fascinating. Um, I'm, uh, I, I really got a lot from it. I hope you do too. This is that chat. Paul, my man. I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you. How are things? <laughs> I can tell. Things are good. I'm things really, really pumped, good. man. You? you know I am. You can see yeah? a big smile yeah, on my yeah. face. Ooh, uh, where to start with you, my friend? Uh, listen, I suppose first, let's, let's start a little bit maybe with you. Do you... Do you have a medical background or where did this interest start with the kind of positive use of psychedelics and all that? Yeah, really just personal, you know, personal use in my late teens, early 20s. I was in college and found myself a handful of psilocybin mushrooms with a couple friends and did those and was like, that's interesting. What were you in college so, doing? I, my bachelor's degree, it was at the time I was studying medicine. Um, I was pre-med and then also studied business and history. And so a fairly diverse background. And then after that first psilocybin experience, which was with, with high dose, not, not, a, not a microdose, I did acid about five months later and was like, oh, this is, this is the truth. This is where it's at. And had that really sort of typical classic, like profound, insightful, high dose psychedelic experience. And then, you know, it was at a time when I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I was just finishing my sophomore year of college and was assessing that and made the decision that instead of going to, you know, more schooling, I would just go travel. So when I was 21, I moved to Turkey. I taught English in Turkey for a year, 
Soon after that, moved to Thailand, built my first business in Thailand. I lived in Thailand 20... for a while. What was your business in Thailand? What were you doing there? I, I, so I taught English in Turkey in a private school in a place called Izmir, the TOEFL test, which is sort of like IELTS. It's a test that non-native English speakers will take to like get their MBA at Harvard or become a pharmacist in the United States. And I trained people for that test. And I just happened to be building it in Chiang Mai in Thailand because it's incredibly inexpensive to live there. And everything I did was remote. So I was working with clients in the States or Japan or China or Europe, but I was living in, you know, an apartment that was $150 a month and drinking cappuccinos that were like a buck 40. Yeah, yeah. And so it just sort of figured out, okay, because I had no investment. I, you know, come from a middle-class background. I don't have like a trust fund or anything. And I, in building the first business, I just needed to make more money than I earned. So I thought, okay, moving to Thailand, I can like baseline everything and then, and then grow from there. Happy day. And tell me this then, y- y- your website is called The Third Wave. Does this, does that, does that have a relevance to microdosing or, or is, no, that's just the name? The relevance to microdosing is in 2015, when we came up with the name, I was microdosing on acid in Budapest with a couple friends and we were going to these third wave coffee spots. They're like the super bougie artisanal cappuccino, like with a swan on top of it spots where the beans are from Guatemala, you know, like one little, so we were going to these third wave coffee spots, taking uh, LSD and just talking about like, where's this headed? What's going on here? And came up with this idea of the third wave of psychedelics and how microdosing really defines the third wave of psychedelics because unlike the second wave which was the 60s and 70s when we were just take a bunch of high doses and drop out in the counterculture and the other we were like well what about using microdosing to actually create better systems in which we live so instead of saying fuck it we'll rebel against everything and drop out let's use psychedelics let's integrate them into healthcare business um, whatever else and actually create new systems that um, utilize the, the healing from... Wow, from man, because like that's they're, they're real profound thoughts. I was thinking like, Jesus, if I was doing LSD, I'd just be like, why are my hands so big and is my head made of fudge? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But you like... Yeah. But that's that's brilliant. I'm just that deep thinker. You know, I was reading yeah, Ghost listen, I feel you, I was man. like 17. I, I, and, yeah, know, I like, feel you. Like, I suppo- it goes sometimes. Like, dude, it's not something... It's not something that's commonly known. Like I'd say a lot of our listeners even, let's start at the beginning. Like, let's get into it. Like what is microdosing? Explain that to someone Uh, who never heard of it before. So microdosing is taking a 10th of a regular dose of a psychedelic. The idea with a microdose is that it's subperceptible. So it's supposed to feel like taking fish oil or vitamin D. And what you notice after microdosing for let's say two or three times a week, for 30 days, you're a little more present, you're a little more aware, you have a little more energy. It's sort of like what people would experience after meditating for 30 straight days or after cleaning up their diet for 30 straight days. It's just like this nice little beneficial add-on. But it's not the classic psychedelic experience where you're like tripping out and seeing other worlds and having these visual hallucinations. Again, the idea with microdosing is that it's sub-perceptible and that the, the, the changes that you're paying attention to are more about the 30 to 60 to 90 days rather than how do I feel it when I take it on X, Y, and Z day? Now, what's interesting about microdosing is as a concept, it's, it's been around for thousands of years. Like if you look in ancient texts, people have been microdosing for a long, long time. But most of the modern research on psychedelics is around high doses, you know, like having that quote unquote mystical experience. And a lot of the modern research that's coming out of places like Imperial College and NYU and uh, Johns Hopkins is about high doses of psilocybin for 
clinical conditions like treatment-resistant depression, major depressive disorder, PTSD, OCD, uh, end-of-life anxiety. And there's a significant relationship between those high doses of psychedelics and healing from this. Now, when it comes to microdosing, we're just starting to learn from a clinical perspective what's going on. But we do know hundreds of thousands of people have reported positive benefits and effects from this. And it's a really exciting sort of development in the space because it looks as if microdoses of psychedelics, and this is a big a big statement, but I, I'm happy to back it. Microdoses of psychedelics will likely replace conventional psychiatric medications, SSRIs, ADHD medication, SNRIs, replace them within, I would say, 10 years would be my, my expectation. Not totally and completely, but we'll start to see that shift in a significant way in the next 10 when you, years. When you're, talking, when you're talking about microdosing, Paul, what, what, what drugs are you talking about in particular? So LSD and psilocybin mushrooms are the two most common ones that people are microdosing. Okay. Because you said there, like, it, it's been around for a long time, ancient civil. I'm half Egyptian, right? So, so I know nice. back in the day, you know, and yeah. I always had this thing where, you know, you know, ancient Egyptians would use um, psychedelics or mushrooms or whatever it was to like transcend. Blue lotus flower as well. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and then, and, you know, I'm also, my mother is Roman Catholic and, you know, I, I've read a lot of books and, you know, you know, someone was talking to a burning bush and it did strike the mind if a guy was walking around in the desert for 40 days and next thing he started seeing bus, a bush on fire talking to him, I was thinking, well, actually my mate Anto, um, you know, so uh, there, there might be, there might be a correlation there of like to go back, is it part of ancient cultures for years and years to, to, to use psychedelics? Yeah, there's this fascinating book just published, New York Times bestseller by a guy named Brian Muir Rescue. It's called The Immortality Key, The Religion with No Name, that tracks the ancient use of psychedelic medicine from Gobekli Tepe, which is the basically cradle of modern civilization in eastern Turkey. There's remnants of psychedelic plant medicines in Gobekli Tepe, tracks it into ancient Greece and how this substance called kaikion which was made from ergot, a fungus that grows on rye bread, the same thing that LSD is made from. The ancient Greeks were drinking this in something called the Eleusinian Mysteries, Plato and Aristotle, and it was around the god Dionysus. And then this book tracks how that influenced early Christianity, the parallels between Dionysus and Jesus Christ, mm. and how the initial sacrament, the initial communion, the wine, was actually infused with a psychedelic medicine because for the first 300 years of Christianity, it was a cult. It was underground. It was illegal. People could not be Christians. So the way that they gathered was in basements with these plant medicines as part of their rituals. It was only in 307 AD when Constantine made Christianity, the official religion empire, the official empire of the, the Roman or the, the, the official religion of the Roman empire that they took out the psychedelic because it would have been too disruptive and chaos for widespread use. Um, so there's a fascinating history that is only starting to become more widely known. And a lot of this research has been around for 40, 50, 60 years. But when it was first presented in the 70s, the scholar who presented it, Carl, Carl Ruck was his name, was basically excommunicated from everything because of how stigmatized these substances are. And it's only now with all the clinical research coming back and all the sort of growth of interest in them that people are like, oh, yeah, we've been using these forever. In fact, the ancient Greeks said that life would not be worth living without these substances and that if this were to be taken away from them, that they would have no reason to continue to exist.
which is heavy, right? Which makes, which asks, you know, makes you ask the question, at what stage did society put this stigma on these things where now we're a society that shuns anything to do with, you know, looking at, at a life that's, or looking in, internally into yourself with the, with the crutch or the help of, of psychedelics, you know? Like in Ireland, if you went around going, yeah, no, I microdosed on Ella, you'd be just, it'd just be, just none, it's just not acceptable at all in any form. I you're where you're in LA, right? In LA at the moment. See, fuckers yeah. are wild out there. You've, le you've legalized marijuana yeah. and everything out there, haven't you? You can do what yeah. you like. Yeah, it's pretty flexible. I mean, technically, microdosing is still illegal, but like everyone is doing it in places like Venice or Williamsburg or even in a place like Oakland, they decriminalize all plant medicines. Denver decriminalized psilocybin. But Oregon, which is, uh, you know, a state in the United States, they just legalized psilocybin therapy, which will be available in 2023. California is looking to legalize all psychedelics by 2024. So this thing is like, Europe's a little behind on the, the marijuana angle. I think the UK might be starting to move on it. Ireland, I don't really know what the full situation is. Germany, I think it's available for medical use. France hates all drugs and refuses. The Netherlands obviously has psilocybin truffles. Uh, in fact, we've had, I, I started a legal psilocybin retreat center in the Netherlands. We had people from Ireland come over and um you know a handful so it's like it's available but here's the thing about psychedelics is they've always been underground you know they've never been sort of like mainstream even like i was saying with the ancient christians right like christianity was a cult for the longest time for 300 years after jesus they used this plant medicine but it was secret even when the ancient greeks were doing it they went to this thing called the eleusinian mysteries but they literally could not tell anyone what happened in it. it was a total secret and that's because the experience is so profound. You're essentially getting in touch with God, which is controversial, but you're getting in touch with God. And so for millennia, these substances have been sort of around and then pushed into the underground and then available and then pushed into the underground, right? If you look at the Inquisition, you know, in, in, in the 17th, 16th, 17th, 18th century, right? These witches that were burned these witches were herbalists. They were the ones that used these plant medicines. So there's always been stigma and it's just been sort of this recurring pattern. And I think the hope of what's occurring now is with all the clinical research going on to first transform healthcare through psychedelic medicine as an, op as an opening to legalize psychedelic medicine and regulate it on a widespread basis so that it's not just for clinical use, but for everyone. Because when you talk about when you talk about things like LSD or um, DMT or you know mushrooms or those type, usually it, automatically people just spring to the to the idea that it's a spiritual journey or an internal journey that someone wants to go on, and hence why they. Do. But with microdosing, I suppose the main thing is why do people microdose in 2021? Yeah, so like three core reasons. Reason number one is for like self-medication, right? So people who have been on SSRI medication or have been on ADHD medication or other could be anti-anxiety medication. They maybe used it for a year, three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years. Nothing's getting better. They're still addicted. They try to get off. They're, they have significant withdrawals and they hear about microdosing and they go, maybe this is something that can actually help. It can help me get off of these addictive pharmaceutical medications. It can help me feel more present, have more energy, get out of these depressive states. So I would say that is a core, probably the majority of folks who are coming to microdosing is as a, as a tool for, for, for self-medication because the current medications are ineffective. I would say the second core reason that folks are coming to it are people in their like 60s and 70s 
who, you know, were around in the 60s, maybe tried a little bit of a psychedelic, had a good experience, haven't come back to it in 30 or 40 years because it became illegal. And now we're just looking for a little extra energy, a little more cognitive clarity. There's research going on around the efficacy of, for, for Alzheimer's and dementia as it relates to microdosing. So folks who are sort of in their elder years are looking to it to help with like, yeah, just a little more energy, a little more clarity, a little more connection, these sorts of things. Like it's a bit it's of funny a, when, you, a, when you say people in their 60s and 70s. I just think of my mom. I can't even get her to try lemon fucking Fanta, let alone microdosing. <laughs> um, but, but, but she tried CBD, yeah? Yeah, well, CBD, you, you know what? The, like, like I've, I've suggested all these things to her. I'd love to know, like, how does microdosing work with regards to the brain? Right, and so that's like the third main group, right? The, the peak performance group, the people who are interested in this for cognitive development, for focus, for flow, for creativity. So essentially what the classic psychedelics do, like LSD and psilocybin, is they activate the 5-HT2A receptor. It's a serotonin receptor. It's one of 12 receptors in the brain. And the 5-HT2A receptor is specifically tied to neuroplasticity. So when you take a psychedelic, you're activating that receptor. There's a significant relationship there between the activation of that receptor and the creation of something called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotropic factor. As the brain creates more BDNF, it becomes more malleable. It becomes more plastic, right? So this is the concept of neuroplasticity. So through microdosing, you're increasing BDNF. You're making your brain yourself more malleable. And then through that microdosing protocol, the idea with it is, hey, this isn't a magic pill. It's not like we just want you to take a little bit of acid and all your problems are going to be fixed. This is an opener. This can help accelerate behavioral change, but you still need to make the changes yourself. You still need to make the commitment to eat healthier, to exercise more, to meditate more often, to journal in the morning, to do whatever it is that you need to do. And psychedelics, because of their impact on the brain, their impact on neuroplasticity, help with that facilitation is the wow. best way to put it. Because I, I wonder, like... It, it, it's a t it, it's a tenth is that of a like not of a serving <laughs> but you're talking like it's a tiny tiny dose so the effect isn't something visually that someone would feel is it is it something that you would recognize that oh i'm a little bit trippy right now or is it this this is always the debate with microdosing what is a microdose and when do you know you're, you're microdosing and you didn't just take a little bit too much of a microdose like there's this story going around right now about a a ceo of a two billion dollar marketing company that got fired by the board because he tried to microdose for like a board meeting and he ended up taking too much because this is the this is the story you hear of all these people out yeah. in la or silicon valley or wherever it is yeah. and they're all microdosing like all your yeah. Wall Street heads, all these people who want these great creative ideas, they go off into the desert in LA and, and that, that's the more trippy ones. But, but microdosing is seen as a, a kind of a popular, um, a popular avenue to go down if, even for these very high executives, isn't it? Like a nootropic, so to say, but it's it, people like it more than a modafinil or a um, you know or a classic you know Adderall or Ritalin because you're still getting the 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 energy increase, the the type of focus, but it doesn't feel near as constricting or near as intense, near as stimulating. So a lot of folks are are looking to microdosing. 
I think first and foremost, on a personal level, it's a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people in leadership positions are stressed. We have, you know, we, we struggle with maybe lack of sleep or mental health issues, or there's just a lot going on. There's a lot of complexity. So microdosing can help just with elevating your mood, feeling better, having more energy, being more playful. And then as you're feeling better, you're, you have a better mood, you naturally just become more creative. You're naturally more productive, right? So, so I think the core of it is helping people feel more present, aware, energized. And the sort of the nice extra benefit is you're a little more creative, you're a little more productive, you're a little more connected, you communicate a little bit better because you're in a better mood, you're more present and aware. Automatically, you would presume that, you know, like with most drugs, if you're using up serotonin, then, you know, yeah, you get that, you get you get a nice secretion of serotonin, you feel all good. But then the flip side of that is you're going to feel pretty shitty later on. But by microdosing, then you don't have those those sharp falls. Is that, that mood falls? So that's somewhat true with MDMA, right? MDMA, when you take MDMA at a higher dose, there's a massive release of serotonin and oxytocin, as well as a few other uh, neurotransmitters. And so oftentimes the day after an MDMA experience, you know, we kind of have where we don't feel quite as good. We need a little bit more. With microdosing, that's not the case. In fact, most people, and that's because LSD and psilocybin are very different substances than MDMA, right? MDMA has just a, a, a different formulation. It's a totally different type of, of substance. So with LSD and psilocybin, people actually report that the day after a microdose is when they feel the best, that they have that microdosing day, and then they sort of have this little afterglow the day after, and the idea with microdosing is that you do it two or three times a week, always take a minimum of, of a day off in between doses because psychedelics have short-term tolerance. So you always want a day off in between them, but Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And what we always tell folks is start low and go slow because you don't want to be the guy in the office who accidentally took too much and ends up you know, not being able to, to do anything and is giggling all over or whatever. You want to start low. There's John John giggling yeah. his ass off all day long. Yeah, exactly. Like, He's doing acid again. John John, we told you. Like, sorry, I'm just trying to get my head around it. So people, people go to work. People go to work. They go, okay, I'm going to have two Weetabix. I'll have some orange juice, a bit of, my, a bit of an LSD. Off I go to work bit for the day. Some acid. Yeah. 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 Man, like, <laughs> if my mother was here, she would have a brolly and she would be beating you close to death with it. Because what you're suggesting is like blasphemy to this woman. You must get awful shit off people trying to defend it. Because you're, you're like an uber intelligent guy. Like you can tell that like talking to you for two minutes. Like you're a very smart guy. But you must get people just fucking attacked can you do initially right because i started this in 2015 i started this six years ago right so when i first came out about it people were like you're fucking nuts what are you doing this is illegal this is like who like and i'm like uh just wait and then and then michael pollan who's this really well-known journalist in in uh, the states wrote he wrote this book the omnivore's dilemma has written six new york times bestsellers he wrote a book on psychedelics in 2018 number one new york Times bestseller all this research is coming out and so now it's like like my, you know, I'm from the Midwest in Michigan, which would be parallel to, you know, growing up in Galway in Ireland or something like that. You know, it's like a, it's like a smaller side, a lot of cows around, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty chill vibe. And um, so uh, not conservative, but more traditional. Um, and my parents, you know, very opposed to drugs. And so when I first told my mom, in 2014 that I was into psychedelics, she's like, oh, you're going to turn into a wet noodle. And I was like, no, like, that's not the case. And now I'm like, like I was home a year and a half ago. And my dad, who's never smoked cannabis, has like never been drunk, right, is like, goes to church every Sunday is like, you know, a teetotaler. 
I sent him Michael Pollan's book to read, had him start to microdose a little bit, and then we did a high dose of psilocybin mushrooms together. And he was like open to it and, and understanding of it. So I think a lot of it is like, initially there was a lot of pushback. Now, I, especially with cannabis and how sort of liberalizing that's becoming and in the United States, again, I, I know perspectives are different kind of across the oceans, but the United States, there's been a huge backlash against pharmaceutical companies. I've always found that Americans, it's the one thing that always startled me about being in America, is your vocabulary when it comes to pharmaceutical drugs is off the chart. Like in Ireland, we just don't have that. We don't have that that ready knowledge. Like people usually go to a doctor to find out what, you know, what they need. While in America, people are just like, no, you need Adderall, you need this, you need that, you know. They know, they know a lot about pharmaceutical drugs. It's big business, right? It's, well, and that's, it's after oil and gas, sort of the fossil fuel industry, the pharmaceutical industry is the second biggest industry in the world. And a significant portion of that are these conventional psychiatric medications that are prescribed in America. And it's just like, it's changing now, but still predominantly most medical professionals will just be like, here's a prescription. You know, you, you're not feeling well, go get this. You're not feeling well, go do that. And that's starting to change and shift. And it will, I think, especially with COVID and what COVID has highlighted and, and amplified as it relates to the mental health crisis, people are now recognizing, oh, we really do need these medicines, these psychedelic medicines to help people because like SSRIs are no more effective than a placebo. So you could just take a sugar pill and, and have just as good of a result. And they have, as anyone who has seen one of these advertisements before, they have a laundry list of negative side effects. They are addictive. There's withdrawals. There's nausea. You can't sleep. I mean, it's like... It is significant. Psychedelics, as long as you don't have a predisposition to schizophrenia, there are, there are a small percentage of people who should never be doing psychedelics. There's very few negative side effects, especially at a microdose level. Almost none. They're so negative. I'm just wondering, right? Do you microdose? Do you, do you, you microdose yourself, obviously, do you? Or do you go through stages of it? Like, do you do, do I go, okay, I'm going to microdose for, for April. It's like microdose April, right? Happy days. I'm going to do that for the month yeah, of April. And then, May, I'm going to, then, <laughs> then I'm going to take a month off. Like, do you, or do you just do it? Is, is that like, is it like taking? So the way, yeah. So when I first started microdosing, it was twice a week for seven months that I did it with LSD. And then I took like five months off and then I did it for another three months and then I took a couple months off. And now it's like, I'll go a month or two where I'll microdose consistently and then I won't do it two or three months. And then if I have like a big talk or something, not for podcast interviews, but if I'm doing a public talk or which hasn't really happened much lately, but going to a conference, I'll microdose specifically for that. Um, So I have specific things that I'll microdose for. This is what I'm wondering. Like when you arrive at work, like is it noticeable to other people? Like are other people going... Jesus, Paul's eyes are like fucking saucers, and he's talking a lot. Like, like, do they, do they, do they clock it, or is it just something that you feel that you know? Well, keep in mind that that my entire team, right, the entire teams that I've hired for the companies that we've built, are all doing psychedelics as well. So to Fuck, them, it's I'm in like, the wrong business, man. Like, I mean, I mean everyone's just, micro, everyone's microdosing. It's I just feel like, like everybody around me's microdosing sometimes, <laughs> yeah. but but wow, wow, I'm just just amazed but like for people who it's not normal you know like could you tell if they take too much if they didn't do it correctly but if they're doing it in the appropriate way the idea is like you can do all the normal things that you would do but you just feel a little enhanced it's just a little bit of an enhancer wow 
That is mad. And then, of course, obviously people's tolerances are all different. So it's, it's, is it possible to have like a bad trip while microdosing? Uh, you know, not like the classic bad trip where it's like, I died and who am I? And, yeah. you know, like all the, the nasty stuff. Um, but there are people who definitely, if they start microdosing, there will be, un there could be uncomfortable emotions that could come up. There could be trauma that comes up. There could be, you know, because a lot of, a lot of what psychedelics do is they open up the conscious mind to the subconscious and the unconscious and the subconscious, and the unconscious, so much of depression, addiction, alcoholism, anxiety is often tied to trauma that's been stored in the unconscious and the subconscious. So a, a high dose psychedelic is like, <sighs> got to go down to the basement and clean it out. I haven't looked, I haven't looked down there in about 30, 40, 50 years, but I had this really traumatic thing happen to me when I was seven years old that was never processed. So let's go in there and let's take this out and let's do it with the help of a therapist or a guide because they'll help me to navigate this. So oftentimes when people first start working with psychedelics, it's not all fucking rainbows and butterflies and unicorns, you know? There's some heavy, deep, dark shit that people go through, which is why they're so healing. But it's in having the courage to face the trauma and to heal the trauma that so much of the benefits of psychedelics. Because I know, funny enough, from. you mentioned Thailand there, and I know there's a lot of people that go to Thailand or go to South America to find shamans or, or tap into ayahuasca or DMT for that very reason, whether it be they have a problem with heroin or whether it be just um, psychological issues that they, they can't overcome. And usually it's overcome through psychedelics. But they're powerful psychedelics, right? They're, that's a different thing completely to microdosing like DMT or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and that's even with what we have with third wave, we talk a lot about microdosing, but we're also, we're rolling out a list of like, these are tr trusted providers, retreats, clinics, practitioners that you can work with because when you're in a high dose experience, you're very um, vulnerable. You're very suggestible. You know, these, these, these are powerful substances. So you want to make sure that if you're going into an experience like that, that you feel safe, you feel supported, you feel like the person or the retreat center that you're working with has great facilitators, a great reputation, a, a lot of integrity because you're essentially putting your hands in the, you're putting yourself in the hands of someone who, um, who's going to help guide you through this. And so it's a very vulnerable position to be in. And that's also why I love microdosing so much because microdosing allows people to to experience some of the healing benefits of, of psychedelics without having to, you know, you know, dissolve their ego through ayahuasca or travel thousands of miles to go to South America or Thailand. You know, it allows them to start to essentially what I call develop the skill of psychedelic use. So they understand, oh, this amount affects me this way and this amount affects me this way. And if I take this now, you know, or do this with meditation or maybe I'll journal with this. So I talk more and more about that. Like how, think of psychedelics as a skill that we develop. Like you learn how to cook, you learn how to write, you learn how to do jujitsu. And the more skillful you become at it, the, 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 um, the better you are at using it to heal trauma, to help with creativity, to connect with friends or loved ones or whatever the outcome is that you're looking for. That always amazed me about people who do jujitsu. They're the biggest stoners I've ever met in my life and they're ready to break Or there's neck. a lot of jujitsu people who microdose. Oh my God, man, I couldn't get over it. It's like, is, it, does shit happen yeah. in slow motion? Because the guy was nearly killing me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And he's, he's, he's wasted, he's completely wasted. Um, out of all the information that you've gathered and you've studied and you've learned, what, what, what was the clincher for you? What made you think, oh man, this is, 
this is the way forward. This is a progressive avenue that we have to, as a society, get back to that we've veered away from. Was there was there certain information that, that you took on board that you just thought, how are we not doing this? That's a great question. I love great questions. You always know you <laughs> ask a great question because then I need to like buy time to That's all right. Time is okay. The, you have time. What the, what the proper response yeah, will be, you but, know? Um, so I'm going to get a little, I like to get a little meta, a little philosophical. So your, your listeners have probably heard of Nietzsche before, Friedrich Nietzsche, right? Um, uh, God is dead, the will to power. So Nietzsche came up with this concept, this topic that God, that God is dead in the late 19th century, which, which essentially meant Christianity, back to what we were talking about before, Christianity and the philosophy of Christianity held together the tenets of Western civilization for thousands and thousands of years. And then with the invention of the printing press and widespread literacy and the enlightenment and the industrial period, science, the materialist perspective started to replace some of those uh, philosophies. And so Nietzsche predicted that the age of the 20th century would be an age of nihilism, right? This age of well, where is meaning? What is meaning? How do we find meaning? What are our values? If our values aren't rooted in Christianity, what are they then, right? And so he predicted this sort of century of mass chaos, World War One, World War Two, um, you know, everything that's happened over the last hundred years. And so when we look at the current mental health crisis as it relates to depression, addiction, alcoholism, a lot of it can be tied to um, disconnection, right? People feeling disconnected, disconnected from themselves, disconnected from the environment, disconnected from their community, right? That sense of isolation is what leads to this mental health crisis, which is why COVID only accelerated and amplified it. And so what, we, what we've learned through psychedelic research is that psychedelics can reliably induce what is called a mystical experience, and again, this goes back to the ancient Greeks. We've known this for thousands of years. The ancient Greeks said that life would not be worth living without these medicines. And so what modern clinical research has proven is that psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in, in magic mushrooms, can reliably induce a mystical experience. The stronger the mystical experience, the more healing power it has for depression, addiction, anxiety, alcoholism, right? So, so how, how are we tying all this together? From my perspective, it's not just a mental health crisis, it's an existential crisis. We're going through this massive existential crisis about who are we, what are our roles in the earth, like where do we find our values, what, what, what is meaning in life, et cetera, et cetera. 100%, yeah. Grappling with those questions is really difficult, as Nietzsche said, right? Because if we don't have Christianity as sort of this, this, this fundamental philosophy to rely on, then where is that coming from? Um, who is making it? And so what psychedelics do is they put us back in touch with this mystical experience with this direct connection to the divine with this, you know, spiritual awakening or opening. And because we have that spiritual awakening or opening, because we're remembering the importance of connection to divinity, which is what we've forgotten because God has been dead in remembering that that's where this healing comes from. And so I think that to me was the most interesting part. It's like, I grew up religious. I grew up going to church every Sunday, twice a Sunday, mission trips, reading the Bible. It was, I was in a Protestant church, you know, but it never really felt real. It never really felt legit. So I started reading Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and, you know, like the sort of core mainstream atheists. And that never really felt right as well. And then once I started to do psychedelics, 
I was like, oh, this is what all of the mystics have talked about from Buddhism to Hinduism, from Christianity to Islam to Judaism. There's this common thread throughout all world religions, which is about this direct connection to divinity. The Christians called this Gnosticism, right? The, the Gnostics having that direct connection. So I think that's what's opening up again. And so when people have this experience, they feel that direct connection to divinity. That is what is so healing. And that is so important because um, we're also dealing with this climate crisis, right? Where we're dealing with like the world around us is starting to fall apart. And um, a huge, huge part of sort of these new religions or new churches that will start to sprout up will be reintegrating or rewilding with our external environment. Because when we find harmony with nature, like anyone who, who has gone and spent a week in the woods knows what I'm talking about. You just feel better. You sleep better. You feel healthier. It's, it's, it's a I matter of being centered, what, right? Because, because I know, like, I, I've worked as a travel show host, right? For years, okay? Nice. And whether I was in the tundra looking at the northern lights or I was standing in front of Anchor Wat or I was in the Amazon, there's a moment of, of like you say, the best thing to describe it is uh, as of harmony, of being centered. So if you add in say something like microdose like i think the confusion for a lot of people is they think drugs right and when you think drugs you think heroin you think uh you think uh, cocaine you think you think the, the 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 stigma of drugs anyone who i've spoken that's spoken about psychedelics and that's why i find you so fascinating is because it's something that's grown out of the ground like a lot of the time it's it's something that's been there for so long it's like this life skill that people for years and years had and all of a sudden for some reason society has just dissolved it and put this stigma on it now where's the most progressive place where's the most progressive place in regards to um moving forward and microdosing and things like that it's a good question i think canada as as a as a, as a jurisdiction canada because canada's already legalized cannabis they've decriminalized all drugs you can now like look online and there are a bunch of web public websites that will sell you microdoses of psilocybin online um as long as you're based in canada so canada's really leading the push for that um you know the netherlands has always been really interesting in that way right weed hasn't been legal but as everyone knows, you can go buy weed, but it's like this weird middle black market. It's weird. It's a really weird thing. But psilocybin truffles are legal there. So like you can go into a head shop, you can buy psilocybin, you can microdose. There are products up and coming. But the Dutch are funny because it's not like it's widely used, but there's like, it's very liberal there. Switzerland, it's very liberal in Switzerland as well. So I think Canada, in terms of nation states, Canada, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and then in the United States, like we saw with cannabis, it just depends on where. You know, if you're in Alabama or the Deep South, it's going to be many, many, many years before you can have access to this. But if you live in Oregon, less than two years, you can get legal psilocybin therapy in Oregon. They're setting the whole system up right now so that you just have to go into a, a medical doctor or a therapist. You get a little thing like, okay, I can give you mushrooms and take them with me. Maine, which is I don't even know if anyone knows Maine, but it's like that, that state in New England that, um, uh, that, that's kind of at the, the upper corner. They're about to introduce a proposal to legalize psychedelics. California just introduced something into the legislation to do it by 2024. So I think we'll see a very similar move in the states for psychedelics as we did with cannabis, and that'll happen on a state-by-state -state basis. And then 
there's also um, FDA approval. And so what's happening right now is from a clinical perspective, there's an organization called MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies that just published phase three clinical trials of MDMA for PTSD. And the results are astounding. For typical PTSD, using typical things, 32% of people were cured. For those who used MDMA, 67%. The, the cure rate was twice as effective with MDMA as without MDMA. Wow. And in the United States, I mean, we're just so fucked up in so many ways, but we have a lot of war veterans. 22 war veterans commit suicide every day in the United States. So to have a substance, to be able to medicalize something that can actually work is absolutely groundbreaking. You see, when it comes to, and even when you mentioned ADHD and you know things that people struggle with like that, like that, that I understand. But I just wonder as a society from the psychedelic kind of uh, spiritual connection to the world and using those kind of old habits, how far away are we from that being accepted? Like it's probably, I don't know, there's a lot Like of, outside of medical use. Yeah, so so I, like I understand medical use straight away. Like I'd be like, well, like why wouldn't you? And like anyone who's, ever suffering from something really suffering only they really know what it's like and they know how desperate they are to be better yeah. so i'd never begrudge anyone trying anything to make them to make them better i suppose the main thing as soon as you mention anything to do with any type of drugs is addiction so is it addictive yeah. so the classic psychedelics lsd psilocybin dmt ayahuasca san pedro all of them are anti-addictive in fact a lot of the clinical trials that they're doing is to show how psychedelics are an effective solution to treat addiction so it can treat nicotine addiction it can treat alcoholism it can treat other types of addictions and that's because like from a from a neurobiological perspective a lot of the addictive substances whether it's tobacco caffeine it could also be things like heroin cocaine they are highly active uh, on dopamine um, and so with that activation of a ton of dopamine, then we want that kick again. It's the same reason why smartphones are so addictive. Sure. Whenever you go on your smartphone, you want that kick of dopamine again. The classic psychedelics, the ones that I just mentioned, are largely serotonergic. They largely act on the serotonin system. And serotonin is tied to contentment. It's tied to peace. It's tied to sort of presence and awareness. And the more that we stay in the present moment, the more that we cultivate that sense of awareness, the easier it is to act with mindfulness around certain addictions, right? And heal whatever is informing those addictions. So psychedelics are, in fact, anti-addictive. And for anyone who's had a psychedelic experience before, particularly a high-dose experience that's been fairly intense, you probably understand that like, once you have a high-dose psychedelic experience, you oftentimes don't want to go back into that for maybe six months to a year because it can or be ever, in some cases. Or, yeah. or in some cases, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is where the appeal of microdosing comes in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you know all the positives, so I might as well, you're the best person to answer this. What what are the the negatives, do you think? The risks, yeah. So the the core risk is that these are illegal everywhere still, um, more or less. But by and large, these are illegal substances. And that's the biggest risk when it comes to psychedelic still is the fact they are illegal. With that said, um, at least particular to North America, law enforcement is basically doesn't really care in most places at this point uh, about uh, psychedelics. It's lowest enforcement. So risk number one is, is the legal status. The other core risk is for folks who are predisposed to uh, schizophrenia or who maybe have borderline personality disorder to avoid psychedelics. 
right? There's actually a great company that just rolled out a genetic testing kit called Halugen, H-A-L-U-G-N, that you can purchase. And it's a genetic testing kit to tell you whether or not you can work with psychedelics. Because if you have a certain gene or whatever, then you should, you should avoid them. You shouldn't use them. That's like 1% to 2% of people. So it's not a significant percentage by any means. So it's illegal. Those who have a predisposition to schizophrenia or personality disorder should avoid it. And then the third thing I think to the risk is if for anyone who's on a psychiatric medication, on an SSRI or an ADHD or you know, anything like that, if they're interested in working with psychedelics, to always first speak with a medical professional to talk to a psychiatrist, to talk to a clinical therapist, to talk to someone who knows quite a bit about this and to not necessarily just talk to the psychiatrist that they're currently seeing because they might not know a lot about psychedelics, but to go on third wave or to go on another platform and find a psychiatrist who really knows what they're talking about, who has a clear understanding of how psychedelic medicine can be helpful And what are the steps that need to be taken if someone wants to get off these conventional medications and onto uh, a psychedelic? So I think those are the three core risks. And then, like I mentioned before, and I'll just emphasize it again, there's no rush with this in many ways. It's not like this needs to be a a battle of the ego about, you know, who can do the most, the, the most often. So for a lot of folks, just starting with a microdose, couple of times a week and seeing how that feels is a great way just to get a sense for it. And then once they're feeling more and more comfortable with the medicine, with meditation, with other things to then go into the high dose, but there's no need to just sort of jump in the deep end right away. It can be really valuable to sort of slowly work your way into a much, much higher dose. Do you think it would lead you, like I, I just, uh, like I have a fairly addictive personality. So I imagine if I started microdosing, would after a couple of months of me microdosing, would it just be like me kind of wanting a little bit more? Like as in wanting that maybe my tolerance would, would go down. And before you know it, like a year later, my dog's driving the car and uh, you know, I'm pulled over by the police and it's the front page news. Um, do, you get, do you get me? Like, do, do, like, do, would, is there that fear or are people fairly balanced who, who microdose? Is, is that not a problem that occurs really? So this is, goes into like the addiction question, right? So psychedelics are anti-addictive. They're not physically addictive. If you just were to stop microdosing, there's no physical withdrawals, which makes it quite a bit easier. That's a big difference, right? That's a big deal, really. Oh, even with something like caffeine, as we all know, like if you stop drinking coffee, you're going to have like a shitty few days. That's not the case even with something like microdosing. But there is psychological dependency, right? And so that's why we, so, we, we emphasize so much, like this isn't the drug itself, but this is the opening that comes with the drug. So if you're utilizing microdosing, for specific outcomes, let's say to help with depression. And a big part of your depression is the fact that you just stay inside a lot. You don't connect and socialize with a lot of other people. You don't necessarily eat the healthiest either. So if you make a core goal, like as a result of microdosing, I wanted to help with depression, but I also recognize that eating healthier and connecting with a friend or two is going to help with that process as well. Then microdosing can help with that behavioral change because it helps you to change and adapt but you shouldn't necessarily be overly reliant on it. So what we always talk about is definitely like when you're microdosing, commit to a minimum of 30 days. Do it two or three times a week for at least a month, maybe longer if you want. But at some point, whether it's after two, three, four months, take a break, take a month off, take a couple months off, reset your tolerance, and then kind of come back and see how you want to engage with it. Because these are tools that we can use in and out. But again, like anything, we don't want to feel like we're giving up our power to it. We don't want to feel like we're becoming addicted to it. Sure. We don't want to feel like, oh, the only reason I'm feeling these benefits is because I'm taking this. No, the, the power is always within you. 
right? It's like the story of Dumbo, the, the elephant that could fly. Dumbo always thought, oh, I can only fly because I have this magic feather next to me. And this magic feather is what it's all about. And then Dumbo gets his magic feather taken away and turns out he can still fly, right? So microdosing, and this is the interesting thing about placebo effect and the, the power of the brain and the power of the mind. A lot of this is the belief system, changing our belief system, microdosing, helping with that, but recognizing that the power is still within you and that ultimately this is your decision, this is your responsibility, and this is your life, this is your existence. And microdosing is a tool that can help you to improve it, to balance it, to heal it, but it isn't the magic pill. The, the magic is, is actually you and, and, and who you are. Man, I love your shit. Nice. Like, this is nice. It, it's also, I have to throw in there, it's also incredibly illegal at the moment. Like, yeah. how, long before, how long before someone can go to America and start microdosing? How long do you think, Paul? Because it's not happening in Ireland for a long fucking time, I can tell you that. Well, you can do it now in the Netherlands. So if someone wanted to hop a Ryanair or a Wizz Air flight and pop over to Eindhoven or, you know, Amsterdam for a weekend, they could do that. I would expect by the end of this decade for microdosing to be widely available whether in medical or non-medical form, but there's going to be a lot of shifts and changes over the next 10 years to, to ensure that that happens. So 10 to 15 years before widespread. John, John, that's just about the time we're selling all our Bitcoin. So we'll be fucking flying, man. Exactly. It's all going to come together in one big trip to LA in, in, in 2030. It'll be perfect. It'll be perfect. Man, Paul, I fucking love you. You are just great. It, like, I really appreciate you chatting to me because I knew very little about this. And um, it, it's it's a fascinating area. And man, you're a legend. You're a legend. I'm also going to stay in touch with you, man. So next time yeah, I'm stay in, in, touch. in LA, expect to see this big gray. Well, next head. time I'm in Dub next time I'm in Dublin, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll hit you up and let's, let's Likewise, hang. I'll protect you from my mother and her umbrella because she'd be giving you go. a bashing. She'll be giving you a bashing. But um, listen, that was that was brilliant, man. Look, thanks so much for your time, pal. Have a good day. Enjoy Thank the you. beach. Yeah. Yeah, it was great to connect. Yeah, good stuff. What did I say? Did I tell you he was brilliant? Wasn't Paul great? He's so cool. Isn't he? Just really interesting. Really guys. interesting. Wow. Okay. So, God, how do you summarize that? Right. Let me think. What do I think? Okay. I think one of the most common kind of rebuttals from advocates of what people would call uh, quackery meds or, and complementary or alternative medicine is the charge of being closed-minded, that they reject out of hand any idea that does not fit within their very tightly framed worldview. Of course, this is an unfounded rumor, really, given the, the fact that science, including science-based medicine, thrives on the open and free exchange of ideas, and it's not closed-mindedness. Closed-mindedness? Closed-mind? Closed-mindedness. <laughs> close nice. you're ruining my flow it's not being close minded it leads to the rejection of, of dubious claims rather it is the knowledge that for many such claims to be true our current scientific understanding would have to be somewhat in error right to such an extent that there be a major paradigm shift in various basic science and that would be necessary you know they're, I know they're big, but listen, look, alternative medicines, I'll tell you right now, they're just not for everyone, and that's fine. But when people I love or, or myself get to a stage where I'm suffering or someone I love is suffering and I've tried 
hard to heal and it's not happening or even i feel like i'm ready to take any life hacks that are going to help me navigate this universe better fuck it man i'm i'm gonna look you know what's the other option i i can give up yeah yeah i can just stop but that's not really my style personally you see the door to your mind is very broad it's probably where my brains fell out of but my point is I'll take any help the planet is handing out. Labels can fucking kill us. Drugs are okay, but illegal drugs aren't okay. Well, that depends on who made them illegal, right? I'm not saying revolt against the establishment, but at least ask questions. At least educate yourself. And the more you do that, the broader the doors to your mind will become. You don't have to understand and hear everything. You just have to be willing to listen, man. I'm Audi. Oh my God. Mike. That's very good. I'm just, they're just, they're just, oh my God. they're just, back. they're just, Welcome thank back. you. You're on fire. Dad, back listen, listen. Back in the room. Listen, thank you very much for listening to myself, uh, Mahi and John John. Uh, obviously you can, you can, uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can leave a little comment. That would be lovely. Uh, you can uh, pass it on to your mates. Let them know. Um, you can rate us. And by the way, it's only five stars that are available for rating. So I think that's you can a lie. Write it on walls. Uh, you can, yeah, you can, you can, you can, you can get us on social media, of course, as well. You can get me on Instagram uh, at uh, B Ashmawi. That's it. Yeah. Yep, and you can get me on Twitter. And I'd love any suggestions you have for the show, episodes you'd like to hear, whatever it is. Uh, listen, uh, from all of us here, uh, listen. Good luck in the cup. Yeah.